Welcome to Rumsey Connections. My name is Meredith Gaskins, and we are joined today by Alex Lutz, the VP of Marketing and Public Relations. Hello. And our special guest of the day, Dr. Philip Otterbeck, who is the Chair of Medicine and the Chief of Endocrinology here at Rumsey. So through Rumsey Connections, you will meet the fantastic doctors, nurses, and medical professionals that make our hospital thrive. We'll also provide useful information about your own health and hopefully answer some of your own health-related questions. Your endocrine system involves glands within your body and the hormones they produce. A disorder or imbalance anywhere in this system can impact your entire body. On today's episode, we'll focus on one of, if not the most common condition affecting this system, diabetes. So like I said, joining us today is Dr. Philip Otterbeck, Chair of Medicine and Chief of our Endocrinology Department. Dr. Otterbeck is board certified in internal medicine, diabetes, endocrinology, and metabolism. Dr. Otterbeck earned his BA in biology from New York University, followed by his MD at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. After completing a residency in internal medicine at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, Dr. Otterbeck went on to complete his fellowship in diabetes, endocrinology, and metabolism at SUNY Downstate Medical Center. So welcome. Thanks again for joining us today. Let's uh, kick things off and maybe you can let us know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Um, diabetes, is, of course, is a complex medical condition that involves high blood sugar. And uh, there are basically two types of diabetes, as you define type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is what we've always uh, thought about as kind of the uh, early onset of diabetes in youth. And what distinguishes it from type 2 diabetes is it's basically an autoimmune condition. And what does autoimmune mean? It means where the body attacks itself. So the body develops these antibodies, and they, those antibodies go against the beta cells of the pancreas. And the pancreas is the insulin-producing organ of the body. The antibodies uh, bind to those and destroy the beta cells. The body no longer produces insulin. And thus, those patients from a very early age get stuck on and have to be managed their glucose with insulin, typically with an insulin pump for the rest of their lives. Mm. Type 2 diabetes, in contrast, is a disease uh, that we've always generally thought of as something uh, that people develop over the course of their lives, generally as they've aged. Um, and that's a consequence of uh, being overweight, obesity, plus or minus genetic factors. And, uh, and as people um, gain weight, they become insulin resistant, and their body no longer becomes able to make enough insulin to control the body's blood sugar. So we have a variety of ways of treating that with diet and exercise and, of course, medications that I'm sure we're going to get to as we talk. What's disturbing about the trend with type 2 diabetes is that we're starting to see this condition, which we had previously thought of as an adult onset, which, which is the old name for type 2 diabetes. We're seeing this earlier and earlier in childhood and teenage years for, for many of our patients. And of course, that sets uh, patients up for um, medical problems as they, as they age. Is, is it happening younger because of um, environmental, hereditary, lifestyle? Genetics always there, but what's changing, of course, is our culture, and our culture is changing in the sense that of uh, things that we like to eat, the availability of particular foods, um, mm -hmm. is changing, and of course, we see in our our um, our population that people are getting heavier and heavier at an earlier age, and this is um, this goes along with our change in our approach. You know, as kids, we remember many of us used to our entertainment was going out and playing with our friends on the mm -hmm. street, riding bikes. 
but uh, but a lot of the entertainment for for younger folks uh, now is uh, centered around their telephones and their video games and the television and and uh, more uh, more activities that make make our our younger folks more inactive, and this leads to increasing weight, which then increases to the increased chance of developing diabetes. So it's something like this, we're becoming more of a sedentary culture, That's which right. is something that uh, Dr. Barkin had mentioned in a previous episode uh, regarding uh, obesity. Yes. Are there different symptoms for type 1 and type 2? Type 1 diabetes can often present uh, acutely. Uh, and and what, do, what does it mean? It means that uh, the, the blood sugar can go very high in a younger person. Mm-hmm. Um, sugars, uh, normal blood sugars around 80, 90, 100, we can think of it that way. Um, patients with type, the presentation of type 1 diabetes can present with their sugars 3, 4, 500. Wow. And uh, typically those individuals present very thirsty, losing a lot of weight. Very, very high blood sugars, of course, when they get to the hospital and a, and a severe condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. But these people will typically have lethargy, uh, very tired, as I said, weight loss, a, a real acute and, 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 and in some cases dangerous presentation. Mm-hmm. Type 2 diabetes is typically not diagnosed with those severe symptoms, although it can. Mm-hmm. Um, type 2 diabetes, uh, especially for an individual who is following up with their primary care provider, um, is typically diagnosed on routine blood work. Mm-hmm. The doctor will order a panel, uh, they call it basic metabolic panel, comprehensive metabolic panel, and that uh, will tell the, tell the doctor whether or not the patient has high blood sugar, even before they're able to develop any of the symptoms of diabetes. It's another reason to get your physicals. Yes. That's so right. what, what are some of the long-term complications of diabetes? <clears throat> so the, the long-term complications of diabetes, we, we, we kind of divide them scientifically into two main buckets, what we would define as um, um, micro and macrovascular complications of diabetes. And, and really, we have to think about what those are specifically. Mm-hmm. So the macrovascular complications you can think of as, as, as disease of the large vessels of the body. So that would be disease of your heart, uh, the predisposition to stroke, that is, d- disease of the arteries of the brain, and as well as uh, the disease of the, the arteries of the lower extremities or your legs. Um, and, and all of us are, are probably know many of our friends and family who have diabetes and have developed heart attacks, strokes, and p- potentially have lost their toes as a relation, uh, as a consequence of the, the blockages in those arteries. Mm-hmm. So those, those are what we call the macrovascular <clears throat> changes. The microvascular changes are a bit different. There are three main um, areas of the microvascular complications. One is retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy. So we'll, we'll talk about what those mean. Um, neuropathy is, is a disease of the nervous system. So people that have diabetes tend to lose um, feeling in their toes, as an example. Um, in, in more advanced cases, they can even lose feeling in their hands, right? Um, so that's the, the nervous system, how, how diabetes affects the nervous system. In terms of retinopathy, diabetes is one of the leading causes of blindness, uh, certainly in the United States and even worldwide. And diabetes affects the back of the eye, which is called the retina. And when the retina becomes damaged by diabetes, patients become blind and they have to undergo many medical interventions to mitigate that that risk and that risk of progression. So that's why it's so important to control diabetes as it relates to the eyes. And then lastly, the kidneys. Diabetes is one of the main causes of progression of kidney disease 
uh, until dialysis, and so um, at both in the United States and, and again as and worldwide. So that's so if you think about it in totality, yeah. diabetes is affecting everything from head to toe. So okay, so type one diabetes, and I mean I'm assuming for their lifestyle, it's important to have a very healthy lifestyle. However, they are still going to have to be on insulin for the rest of their lives. There's nothing they could really do to come off of that, correct? That's correct. Okay. So a patient comes to you, you diagnose them with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. What is the first course of action? Do you immediately turn to medication or do you try to have them make different lifestyle changes? There's nothing more important than lifestyle changes mm -hmm. and that is a combination of a diet and exercise modification. So, so really what does that look like? Um, we would like the patients to have a low carbohydrate diet. Mm -hmm. Specifically what that would look like is avoiding things that r raise blood sugar and specifically and I, I always make a list for my patients but you know pasta bread rice cake cookies pretzels potato chips these kinds of things uh, tend to raise blood sugar very significantly also as part of that we need to do them to do physical activity so we usually recommend about 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise three four five days a week whatever they can fit into their schedule um, so the more they do with those two pieces, the less medication they will need. Je the guidelines have really pushed us to starting medication early for, for patients with diabetes. The reason being is that uh, there sometimes is clinical inertia, both from the standpoint of the patients not wanting medications as well as on the standpoint of the clinicians. They give them a shot, you know, work hard, watch your diet, exercise. And the problem <clears throat> is, is if the patients don't come back for their three-month appointment or six-month appointment, then time is lost, and a year might go by before you see that patient again. Consequently, the patient has had a year to develop a lot of the complications of diabetes. So what we do is we say, yes, we're going to start you on medications today, and maybe uh, we'll be able to come off those medications if you successfully work on diet and exercise modification. Mm -hmm. So medicines are important, diet and exercise is important. We usually do all of them as a group, and then a patient can be, in many cases, weaned off medication. And what are some of the more effective medications that are more commonly prescribed medications that are, are given? One that people will hear a lot about and, and read a lot about is the medicine metformin. Metformin has been around for decades. It is the base of our type 2 diabetes treatment for most of our patients. Um, and I, this actually comes up a lot in the office. People are asking me, you know, doctor, I, I read something very bad about metformin on the Internet, and uh, tell me about it, what's going on. And I always tell them, when you read that thing, if you click on it, many times it's a advertisement for, you know, a vitamin that people are selling over the counter trying to get you to buy something. Mm -hmm. So metformin is a great drug because it's safe, it's efficacious, there's no hypoglycemia or low blood sugar associated with it. Uh, we know the, the safety profile over the many decades that it's been in the market, and it's cheap. So, um, so that's, uh, you know, music, I'm sure, to a lot of patients' ears that do have some trouble affording their medications. So metformin is, is, is really the base of that. Now, what I, what I do have to say, though, is we've had, over the course of the last decade, with the number of me mechanistically novel agents that we have on the market to treat diabetes has really exploded. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this really helps us to, uh, to target and to uh, individualize our therapy for our patients that have a variety of different conditions. Just as an example, um, there are medications now uh, that we have used 
for many years to treat diabetes, but now they've been identified, uh, the, the class of is called SGLT2 inhibitors. These drugs, although they are efficacious for diabetes, and we've used them for that for years, now we've found that these drugs have, a, have the ability to protect the kidney specifically and independently from diabetes. Mm. This really, uh, people that have kidney disease, this, is a, this would be a particular drug that they really should be on. And then separately, there are other drugs that I'm sure we're going to talk about. One of the examples is the GLP-1 receptor agonist. While those are, have, have been clinically efficacious for diabetes, now we know they also protect the heart and protect the patient from what we call cardiovascular death. So there are a variety of drugs that we have available to us, and depending upon the specific patient's risk factors, we target our therapy to their current condition as well as their other comorbidity. I feel like it's been a little bit of a hot topic lately. What do you feel about uh, Ozempic? So Ozempic actually is is part of of a group of medicines that I just alluded to a minute ago called mm-hmm. the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And these have been around, I would say, roughly a little over 15 years on the market, not Ozempic itself, but mm-hmm. similar drugs. Yeah. Of course, they were studied clinically for about uh, five years before that. So so say roughly 20 years of, of clinical experience we have with, with this particular class of drugs. And I'm happy to say that are they not only are they clinically efficacious, but they are basically safe medications uh, on the whole. Mm-hmm. As it relates to people with diabetes and those individuals that have heart disease or the risk, high risk for heart disease, these drugs have the capacity to improve what we call the MACE endpoint, M-A-C-E. And the MACE endpoint is an aggregate of three things, non-fatal stroke, non-fatal heart attack, and cardiovascular death. And these, that MACE endpoint, these drugs have very strong evidence that they improve that MACE endpoint. So, and consequently, they're drugs that are very attractive to us and to the patients because they not only have the ability to lower their sugar, they also have the capacity to prevent all these other things. Ozempic recently um, has gotten a lot of press uh, regarding its ability to help patients lose weight. And, and how do these drugs work? Well, they're, they're binding to the receptors in the brain, in the hypothalamus, um, and the hypothalamus happens to be the appetite center of the brain. So in binding to that hypothalamus, it induces satiety or makes people feel full, thus they eat less, thus their sugars come down. Um, we've known about this you know, for, for many, many years as we've used these drugs w- with our patients, but it has been recently identified by, I guess, the popular press that mm-hmm. but, uh, the ability to utilize these drugs in an off-label way, simply for weight reduction. Mm. And to be honest, they are efficacious for weight reduction. So um, w- this did cause us a problem because we have many patients with diabetes on these drugs, and a lot of people, especially the celebrities, were kind of supporting this use off-label, and thus uh, the supply of the drug was not able to um, meet the needs of both the people taking it for weight reduction as well as diabetes. So it did cause us a bit of a problem uh, this past uh, to, around the, the Christmas time of 2022 when we really, there was really a very short supply of these drugs. And, and in fact, some of that is still residual, although the supply has gotten better, there's, there's still problems. The drugs themselves, though, there is a cousin of, of Ozempic, which is actually approved for weight loss. It's called Wigovi. It actually happens to be the same molecule called semaglutide in both mm-hmm. the drugs, but one happens to be approved for diabetes, one happens to be approved for weight loss. Mm. We know that obesity, being overweight, has um, very significant consequences for people. Mm. And, um, and that 
increases their risk for heart disease, raises their blood pressure, raises their cholesterol, raises their blood sugar, predisposes them to diabetes. So uh, being overweight is not a benign state. Mm -hmm. We do have to think about which are the right patients for whom we can give these kinds of drugs um, on label to help help them lose weight. Uh, because in turn, the hope would be preventing both the morbidity and the mortality increases that are associated with being obese. So I don't have problems. In fact, I support their use for obesity, mm -hmm. but it has to be done for the right patient. Um, and we have to get the support also from the insurance companies, which have not been so excited to pay for these medications. Uh, it has to be more broadly supported before it can be used more widely. Lastly, on this, on this topic, I, I do have a concern about it in the sense that, you know, as I mentioned, the drugs have been around for 20 years, studied for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I don't have data describing safety for 30 years and 40 years and 50 years. And if the, if the plan is to start people in their 20s, or, or, or 30s on these medications, you know, what could be the long-range consequences of that? Don't have that data. No one has that data. And that's, uh, so, so, so when we do this, it is going to have to be a delicate balance of risks versus benefits for, for our patients. When you, so either, whether it's Ozempic, Metformin, is uh, Rebelsin's another one? Rebel. That's like Ozempic, correct? It's very similar to Ozempic. Mm -hmm. Ozempic uh, happens to be a once-weekly injection. Mm -hmm. Rebelsis is a once-daily pill. Mm -hmm. They're the same molecules, some maglutide. But one happens to be a pill, one happens to be a once-weekly injection. So it sounds like... You know, what, these are options that people have, but the, the bottom line is that if someone comes to you or you diagnose someone with diabetes, it is, it's a lifestyle change. It, it can be devastating. It can be, uh, you know, traumatic. A lot of times people are diagnosed with something and they immediately go to the worst case. How do you, how do you tell someone that they're diabetic? And, and how do you kind of get them to like, this is now what you have to do? It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. Now, I, it's a, I'm a, so I'm an endocrinologist. I'm a specialist. Usually I'm, I'm seeing those patients after they've been evaluated and, in fact, treated by their primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. But, of course, sometimes I get the, the patients earlier on in the course. And some people take the news very well um, in the sense that they say, okay, you know, this is what I have and this is what I have to do. But like any uh, receipt of a medical diagnosis, some people take that news very differently. I have some patients that are devastated by this news. They want to do everything they can to, to prevent the need for progression. So a lot of people have, a, have attachments to this disease where mom or dad lost a toe or died or had a stroke. And, and they, they think about these, uh, the, the consequences of this condition and they get very nervous about it. And then, of course, there are some patients that just let it roll off. And, mm -hmm. and, and actually, that group of people sometimes I, I, I worry about because I don't know if they're going to take the, the disease and the condition as seriously as possible. So, so like any disease, you, you discuss uh, the diagnosis and then you discuss the possibilities. But you can imagine for many patients, it's easier for them to take medications than it is to make a lifestyle change, right? Mm -hmm. Our food, as an example, is so integrated many times with our... Uh, our socialization and our culture and we all sit down at a table and there's whatever there is at the table and you're you know many times in a family you're expected to eat whatever's there mm -hmm. and then if and then if you don't eat it people wonder why right and, and so it, it's important to engage your family in, as part of, of of this disease state because first of all if they can make better choices at the table it'll help not only the patient themselves but also the family family, because a lot of times, genetically, diabetes runs in families, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if we can improve the patient's health, we can also potentially improve the entire family's health. 
So someone is listening to this podcast and they're, they may or may not have a family history, but they're worried that they may be dead. What, what, what's a suggestion for them? Should just go to their primary care doctor and just have a physical? Yep. If there's any concern, uh, there's, you know, all, all it would require, go to, your, go to your doctor, your nurse practitioner, whomever you're seeing, and say, look, I have a concern. I have a family history of this, or I don't have a family history of this. What, what, what tests should I get at this point? And depending upon the patient's age, you know, this showing up at this visit might be very important, not only to identify diabetes, but you know, these patients might need a colonoscopy, or they might need a breast mm-hmm. exam, mammography, right? Mm-hmm. So always following up with a provider is, is always the right answer. Mm-hmm. And then if you have a particular concern, you articulate that concern to the provider, and this is as simple as a blood test. There's no invasiveness to it. It's just, you know, give the doctor your blood, and, and they'll be able to give you the, that answer. And that's where the AOA1C comes in, correct? That's what people, and, and what are those ranges that people should know? So there's three ways to di- diagnose diabetes. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's what we're very commonly thinking about these days is the hemoglobin A1C. And the great part of an A1C is, first of all, it tells you how a patient's sugar is for three months. Mm-hmm. But it also, um, it also doesn't have to be a fasting test. So if the patient happens to show up at the office, uh, you know, non-fasting, you're, it's easy to get an A1C. And if that number is 6.5 or above, on two occasions, that diagnoses diabetes. If the patient, however, had a fasting blood sugar, and that fasting blood sugar is 126 or above, that's consistent with diabetes, on, again, on two occasions. Mm-hmm. And lastly, what, and it's a more cumbersome test, what's called a glucose tolerance test. And some of the uh, patients who have had children will, might remember this from during their pregnancy. The doctor gave them a little bit of soda to drink and, and watched how their sugar um, uh, changed over the course of a couple of hours. Uh, we do the same thing in, in, in some patients uh, uh, today, adults, where we give them a glucose load and we monitor their sugar at one hour and two hours. And if that number exceeds at two hours greater than 200, that's consistent with diabetes. Let's talk pre-diabetes a little bit. Could you explain what that is? And is there a way for people to turn things around where they don't become a full diabetic? Yeah, it's a very important state because as many as diabetics as we have as diagnosed, there are many, many more that are Mm pre-diabetic. And um, and when when they're in the pre-diabetes state, this is the time to intervene. Um, we talk about the kind of the difference between um, you know preventative medicine and medicine where we're just you know treating the condition. The idea would be not to get to that condition and hopefully treat them in a preclinical state. And pre-diabetes should be the alarm bells. Uh, the, the 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 provider should be telling the patients, look, uh, you don't have diabetes yet, but you're on your way. Um, and so if we if we tell the patients, listen, this is this is not benign. This is this is something that is likely to progress if we don't intervene now. Um, we can prevent all those micro, macro, microvascular complications that we discussed before, the heart attacks, the strokes, the neuropathy, the kidney disease. So, so the idea would be hit them hard, diet and exercise, and hit them early with these things and then prevent the progression. And I'd like to take this time to get a little bit personal with you outside of the office. Uh, <laughs> maybe you could let us know how you like to unwind and de-stress at the end of the day. Well, mo- most of my most of my fun, you know, probably centers around my family, my my my, my wife and my two children. Uh, we, you know, of course, they're very involved with their sports, so I'm I'm always involved with that. But in the we in the in the winter time, we you know we go we go skiing a lot as well as uh, uh, the springtime is more of a tennis time for me. So nice. And how did you? What about medicine attracted you? And what about endocrinology? I always 
was interested in medicine um, and, and of course and of course science and um, and uh, medicine is is kind of a unique field in the sense that um, at the end of my day I can always think about what I've done in that day and be happy with it. Things don't always turn out the way I wanted, but it's a field where you can always feel that you did the right thing for your patients. And um, and I don't know that every field in the world offers you that 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 ability to feel like you've always done the right thing. So that's that's that, that's why medicine is, is so attractive. And of course, it, it kind of aligns with my interest w- with science. With respect to endocrinology, um, endocrinology is a field that focuses on the hormone systems of our of our body. And um, there's a lot of interplay of the different. Um, endocrine organs of the body and you know one hormone goes up the other one mm-hmm. goes down it makes a lot of logical sense and I tend to be a very logical person <laughs> so the fact that there's that uh, unique aspect to endocrinology has, has always been attractive to me and uh, and the ability to really make a difference in people's lives I mean uh, my patients that I see you know in some fields you see the patients once and that's really it I get to uh, deal with my patients for, for, for years and decades, and it makes it a very rewarding way, way to practice. And you're coming up on 15 years now. Yep. And Almost practice, there. So I guess you took the right career path. Yes. <laughs> for me, it's been great. I'm sure with such an, such an extensive career and you know, probably working with so many patients over this course of time who need you for the duration of you know, their lives, do you have a most memorable patient that stands out in your mind, or a case that you've treated? It's 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 a hard question because yeah. you know of the thousands and thousands of, of people you've treated. I've treated. Um, however, you know I, I'll remember one back to residency, and it was a it was a lady that had come in. She was a, she was diagnosed as having pneumonia. I really didn't agree with that diagnosis. I came in the room and I saw her, and she was complaining about the, the light bothering her. And then I examined her, and she had a very stiff neck and. Um, I suspected she had bacterial meningitis um, in contrast to what maybe the emergency department thought. I turned out to be correct. And uh, ultimately, we started antibiotics aggressively, immediately, and she was able to leave the hospital with with no side effects from the bacterial meningitis. And, um, and had I not that day made that diagnosis, she would have probably had profound uh, neurologic damage. So that so that was the most memorable to me, only because it was it was really uh, it was it was a real a, a time where I was really able to make a real acute difference for somebody's mm-hmm. life. Thank you so much for your time today and for all that you do to keep us safe and well. And that about does it for this episode of Rumsey Connections. I'm Meredith Gaskins. Thank you.